if you want to stand for the reading of the text, I'll appreciate that. We are going to read from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, beginning with verse 22, and we are going to go all the way down to chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. You may be seated. Peter is such a great writer. Would you agree with that? He perhaps is a terrible fisher from what we know, but he's a great writer. He uses all these techniques in his writing um, that really paint this very colorful image of the Christian life with so much depth and so much clarity. He uses a lot of images that uh, make it very easy for us to identify with the people about whom he's talking about. He quotes the Old Testament quite often, and he makes it uh, apply so beautifully to the, Christ to the Christian life. But he especially likes this, this uh, structure, this technique called indicative imperative or fact and consequence. And I know this could not sound more boring than this, um, so just stay with me as I explain what that, what that structure means. This indicative imperative structure starts with an absolute truth about the Christian life. That is the indicative. And, and that absolute truth, in Peter's mind, must with necessity produce a transformation in the believer's life. That's the consequence or the imperative. If something is true about the redeemed, then it must also be true about you, Peter will say. Because for Peter, uh, um, uh, being a genuine Christian is not simply an intellectual commitment. It is a life-transforming commitment that must be seen in the way we live our lives. For Peter, there is no undercover Christians. You know, that, that guy who go to the same job for over a year and nobody knows that he's a Christian. Or that student who goes to school and uh, for a desire to fit in, he hides the fact that he's a Christian. Or, or that lady who's been going to the same grocery store for years now and none of the employees know that she's a follower of Christ. No, for Peter, if we truly are whom we claim to be on the, ins on the inside, that will, with necessity, spill out at the outside. It should be seen in this new life that we have received through Christ. Does this indicative imperative structure sound something like this last week? Because, or if indeed, you were converted by the Spirit, then you must live according with that new identity. Because, or if indeed, you call God as your Father, therefore, you must pursue holiness. Because, or if indeed you were ransomed through the precious blood of Christ, then you must live with the hope in the future grace of Christ. And it's easy to observe that all these three imperatives were on the vertical, between us and God. 
So now Peter takes it a step forward. For him, he, he doesn't just leave it at a vertical Christianity. And today we are going to see that our relationship with God on the vertical must impact our relationship in the church on the horizontal. And then in the future weeks, we are going to see how our relationship with God on the vertical must impact our relationship with the society and our relationship in our families as well. Uh, so, looking at this text this morning, we are going to learn that the regenerate life is marked by a deep love for the people of God and the helpless thirst for the gospel. I'm going to say that one more time. The regenerate life is marked by a deep love for the people of God and the helpless thirst for the gospel. Since you are children of God, Peter would say, then you must love your brothers and sisters. Since you, have tasted that the Since you have tasted the gospel, then you must thirst for it every day. So we are going to look at this text in, in two sections, and we are going to ask the question, why are love for the people of God and longing for the gospel of God marks of the regenerate life? And the first answer we get from the first half is that because brotherly love is an imperative of salvation. Brotherly love is an imperative of salvation. Verses 22 through 25. And the way Peter explains this should by now probably be familiar to us. I promised somebody um, that I'm not going to talk about sandwiches anymore in, in my sermon today. Um, so we'll call it hot dog today. Um, I, I, this is not proper theology, okay? The theology of the hot dog that, that we won't find in any book. But you know, you know what I'm doing. So, so what Peter does here, he, he has two reasons for this love, with, which work as, as the bond for the hot dog. And then in the middle, he has the commandment to love one another. And then he explains what this love should look like. So let's start with the center this morning. In the second half of verse 22, Peter says, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And by saying this, he aligns with the other authors of the New Testament who teach us that love is not an optional virtue. It is a commandment of Jesus, and it cannot be separated from the Christian life. Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. It is obvious in Jesus' teaching that brotherly love is both a command and a mark of the true disciple. And then we go to uh, Paul in Romans uh, 12 verse 10. And he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Again, another commandment to love one another. And then we go to John in 1 John chapter 4, and we'll see his, his characteristic, very blunt style. Uh, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 4 quite a bit today. If you want to stick something in, 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 in that page, that will, be, that will be helpful. But we are going to read this time verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see another imperative for brotherly love. So, if indeed, John will say, if indeed you know God, which for him is, is the characteristic of the believer, if indeed you know God, then you love one another. And then the flip side becomes obviously uh, um, um, uh, valid as well. If you don't love 
the church, if you, don't, if you don't want to have anything to do with the people in the church, if you cannot stand some people in the church, then you must revisit your relationship with God. Because you cannot force love for one another. This is the paradox in this commandment to love. We cannot force love, can we? So then when we struggle to love someone, what we need to do is to go back to the source of love, which is the gospel. We need to go back to the gospel. And we, we are going to talk a little bit more about this later in, in, in this message. But brother or sister who struggles to love somebody in the church, brother or sister who lives in conflict with somebody in the church, who comes to church for individualistic purposes, just for what, just for what we can get from church, and doesn't really live together with the community of Christ. I want to I pray for you this morning, the prayer that Peter wrote in, to, the tes, to the people in, in Thessalonica, and he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Make He increase our love. So if love is so vital, then of course we need to ask, ask the question, what kind of love is this? How, how can we love the same way that Peter co uh, uh, commands us to love? And Peter says that the first characteristic of this love is that it is sincere. It is honest. It is not a hypocritical love. And you see, we, I, I think we have gotten to be so good at hiding our feelings from the people around us. Perhaps not, perhaps not in this church, but, but in, in the other churches or in somewhere else. Uh, we struggle with insincerity, don't we, in churches? You see, we have gotten to be so good looking someone in the eyes and telling that person, you know, it's all good, when we know inside that it is not all good. We have gotten to be so good shaking someone's hand with a smile and say, I'm so glad to see you. But on the inside, we are not that glad to see that person. Many of us, and again, not here in, in, in Canada, many of us <laughs> know how we ought to live, and we know how to fake it. But that doesn't go far, does it? While I was working for this message in a, in a coffee shop here locally, I overheard from a few tables away, uh, there were these two guys talking, and one of them was, was telling the other, he said, I, I, I told her I will be honest with you. I didn't tell her I will be totally honest with you, but that doesn't mean that I'm not still honest. And I was thinking, yeah, you know, it kind of does, no? <laughs> it does mean that you are not honest. And I think somehow in the, in the same way, um, we, we tend to love in the church as well sometimes. You know, I love the church. I, I love every person in the church. I, don't, I just don't want to have much to do with the church. Or I don't want to have anything to do with the church. But that doesn't mean I don't love the church. Yeah, that, you know, it kind of does. Or, or we hear it a lot dealing with teenagers. It's like, yeah, I, I love that person. I just don't like that person. That doesn't mean that I don't love that person. It does, doesn't it? It kind of does. Because you see, a sincere love is not just the absence of hatred. Sincere love is the absence of hatred plus the presence of genuine love. Dishonesty may give us the impression that we are in good relationships with the others, may give us the impression that we live in a healthy community, but dishonesty will not take us far because when things get hard, when people become sensitive, then the true opinions start to come out. Dishonesty will never grow our relationships. 
it will always destroy biblical community. This is why love must be sincere in the church. Then Peter says that love must be fervent. And this word fervent can indicate both intensity and, and, and constancy. The CBS translation, the CSB translation, translates it as constant, which I really like. Was, I, I think they really follow what, what Peter is doing here. But other translations prefer to, to refer to the intensity aspect of this word, and they say that love must be earnest, fervent, or deep. If you were to read in a Romanian translation, they take it to a whole new level, and they will say, love each other with heat. Uh, that, that, that's, that's something else. Uh, probably the, the Latin blood in us. But this love, it's not a passive love. It is not just lip service. It is not just temporary feelings towards the other. No, this is a fervent love that is constant, that endures. It is that covenantal love that we find in the pages of the Bible that God shows His people constantly. It is that covenantal love that we ought to find in marriages as well. It is that abiding covenantal love that God has commanded us to love Him with. And this same covenantal love, Peter says, we ought to show in our relationships in the church. Often the example that we get from our culture about how to love the people goes something like this. You, you know, you, you got a new job and you're very excited about it. The first week when you go with the job, you love everybody. Everybody's nice. They are all so much better than the previous work environment because that one was toxic. No? And then a week goes by and you slowly start pulling that mental long list of new friends and you start crossing out names. That person is too loud. That person irritates me. That person doesn't accept me. That person is critical of me. That person doesn't let me to achieve my own potential. You hear, that, you hear that a lot in our culture today. And we start crossing names. And then by the time we get to the, to the bottom of the list, we start looking for a new job because this job, this work environment is toxic. We need something better. And I think... I think following that example in the church is it's, it's very, very destructive to church community. Coming to the church with, 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 with the idea that I'm going to love the people in the church for as long as I am going to be served by them the way I think I should be served. And I'm going to love the church as long as it offers me what I think the church should offer me. That, that, is, not, that is not the way we are taught to love. Because when things get hard when we don't get precisely what we need, we cannot start crossing names. And if you start crossing names, then we must go back to the cross because that's not the love that Jesus has shown us and has commanded us to imitate. That love is not circumstantial. It's not conditional upon what we can receive. That love is constant through differences, through disappointments, through hurts. It is constant through insults even through misunderstandings. That love endures, as Peter says. And the third thing that he says about this love is that it must come from a pure heart. This is the characteristic of a new heart, being pure. It, it, it is the heart that is received at conversion. And, and Peter says here um, that... Um, let, me, let me find it for a second. Uh, yeah, he says from a pure heart, um, and before that, he talks about how by obedience to the truth we have been converted, and we are going to talk about that in a little bit. But this is, this is that, that love that comes out of who we are, of our new identity. Jesus was saying about this love in Matthew 5, 8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God, indicating towards the believers. And then uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy um, 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Again, an indication of the true believer. This is the only love that we should see in, among, among brothers and sisters in the church. It's the love that comes out of our new identity in Christ. This love doesn't come out of preferences. It doesn't come out of, of common interest. It doesn't come out of, of physical or intellectual attraction or, or of the same stage of life or, or, or comes out of education or it comes out of social class or whatever else we use to misplace brotherly love in church. No, this love comes from our new identity in Christ. It comes from a pure heart. It is this kind of love that we can direct towards somebody with whom we have nothing else in common but Christ. It is, the, it is the love that is based on who we are in Him. Now let's move to the two reasons that, that Peter offered, the, the, the bond of this, the, of this whole thing. Um, and the two reasons are presented to us as, a, as a, a perfect participle, which simply means that they refer to a past action that has a constant consequence. It, it, it has a continuous consequence through present and going into the future as well. And these two reasons are having purified ourselves and then two, having been born again. So let's start with the first one. We must love sincerely because we are purified for brotherly love. We must love sincerely because we are purified for brotherly love. Verse 22 starts like this. Having purified your source by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And the image that Peter creates here is the, it's the Jewish image of the rituals of purification, the cleansing rituals. We see them through the Old Testament quite a bit. We even see them in the New Testament. In Acts 21, verse 26, we find actually uh, Paul is going through a ritual of purification in order to go into the temple and serve, serve there. This can be a spiritual cleansing or a physical cleansing, and it will set one apart for approaching God or for serving God. So Peter compares this ritualistic cleansing with our conversion, as I said, by saying by obedience to the truth. You see again this word obedience being used in reference to our conversion, as we saw last week when he says, as children of obedience. Now, the rituals of purification... Although they don't apply to us, they, they, had something, they had something very interesting in them. They were always done for something. They were always purposeful. They were always done in order for one to be able to serve or to stand before God or to relate deeper to God. It is the idea that, uh, if you want to translate, translate it for us, what Peter is trying to communicate, it is the idea that we are not just saved from something, but we are also saved for something. We saw last week that we are saved from sin, we are set apart from sin, and we'll see this week that we are set apart for brotherly love. Thus, Peter's first reason for brotherly love is anchored in the fact that we have been purified through Christ, who spilled his blood on the cross and who took away our sins as a fulfillment of what was in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, which was the apogee of purification. And now, therefore, we should live accordingly in our relationships with one another. The second reason for this love 
Paul said, uh, Peter says, we must live constantly from a pure heart because we are born again through the gospel. Verses 23 through 25. Somehow in Peter's mind, the fact that we are born again, the fact that we have received new life through Christ, should automatically prompt us to love one another in the church. And on one hand, that is true because the message of the gospel is a message of love, is the message of love. In John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then Paul in Romans 5.8 said, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in Galatians 2.20, again Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. This is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life, now, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says again, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then we go back to 1 John in chapter 4, and we are going to read verses 9 and 10 here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. This is the message of the gospel. This is the love message of the gospel. And then also, on the other hand, the gospel is the foundation for brotherly love because we are called to sacrificially imitate this message of love that was shown to us. We are going to go back to what Jesus said in John 15, Verse 12, he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus was anticipating his own laying down of his life for us. And then we go in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, and Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see the idea of imitation here. You see what we are to imitate, Jesus' love, and you see that that love is sacrificial. And then we go back to 1 John for the, for the last time. 1 John chapter 4, we are going to read verse 11 first. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Then verse 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See that the transformation that the gospel produces in us must with necessity produce love for God and love for one another. We cannot divorce salvation from love. And we cannot divorce love for God with love from one another. They all must come together. 
However, the reason why Peter brings this this brings the gospel into the picture here is not primarily to show what this love represents and and what this love imposes but he stops at one aspect of one aspect of the gospel which is the imperishable aspect of the gospel the gospel is living the gospel is abiding or enduring peter says you see the gospel produces moral change because it has living power it produces constancy in love because it will stand forever. It's eternally remaining. Just as nothing can separate us from the love of God because of the power and the endurance of God, Paul says that nothing can separate us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Just as that, because of the living and the abiding character of the gospel, nothing should separate us from loving one another. For the people here that Peter addressed, that was probably a direct reference to the persecution that they were going through. That persecution should not prevent them from loving one another. I don't know what it is for us today. There are, there are so many things that prevent us from loving one another, but none of those should separate us from loving one another. Because all circumstances are temporary, and so is our life. This is what Peter says here. But the gospel of Jesus Christ endures forever. Brothers and sisters, we must anchor our love for one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must let this gospel of Jesus Christ to shape the way we love one another. You see, we will never have to love with the same intensity that Jesus loved us. Because there will never be such a big distance between one another as it was between God and us when God decided to come down and move lovingly towards us. We will never be able to love with the same intensity that Jesus loved us because He's divine and we are humans. He's perfect and we definitely are not. But we are all called to love in the same manner that Jesus loved us. Forgiving each other, making sacrifices for each other, being present for each other, crying with each other and celebrating with each other, never looking down at each other, never dismissing each other, never maliciously judging each other, but rebuking each other in love if we need to, encouraging each other, moving towards each other, going into each other's homes, looking with affection at each other, helping each other grow spiritually, helping each other in tough circumstances, carrying each other's burdens, showing God to each other, even feeding each other if we need to reconciling with each other, living for each other, and even dying for each other. That's how Jesus loved us. And that's how our love should look in the church. That's how we should approach our brothers and sisters. And I pray that God will grow this love into us and will make it look more and more like the love that Jesus has shown us. Because brotherly love is an imperative for salvation. We're going to now ask the same question to the second part of this text. Why are love for God's people and longing for the gospel marks of the redeemed or the, of the regenerate life? And the second answer is because longing for the gospel is an imperative of true faith. 
Longing for the gospel is an imperative of true faith, verses 1 through 3. Peter builds this argument upon the previous verses, and, and uh, this structure goes a little bit differently. The first verb here should be read as an imperative, not, not as a participle. So first, Peter adds a list of sins that are incompatible with, with a healthy church community, and he commands believers to put those sins away. And when he says to put those sins away, this expression through the Bible is primarily used for, uh, when, when it is commanded for people to rid themselves of some traits of the old self. And we saw that last week as well. Peter, uh, Peter spoke in other words about that as well, how we are to rid ourselves of, of the old self. Paul does that, James does that, does that and now Peter does that. And these things are very significant for Peter because they destroy what love builds. And therefore, Christians should definitely put them away entirely. And they should rid of them permanently because they are incompatible with the, with the healthy church community. The first sin is malice or wickedness. This one is the most general of them all. It simply means any ill intent that we have in our relationships with each other. Anything evil that we bring with us when we approach the people in the church. This is incompatible with love because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, as it is, says in, as it is said in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Then we had deceit and hypocrisy. Those two are very closely connected and they, they don't need any explanation. Deceit and hypocrisy are incompatible with love because love rejoices with the truth says in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Then we have envy or jealousy, again a word that doesn't need any explanation. This is incompatible with biblical love because love does not envy or boast, says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And then lastly, we have slander, which is that evil speech against someone. It, it, can be, it can be represented by us dispurging someone, by spreading false information about someone, or even by gossiping against someone. It is that evil speech that causes those people who hear us talk about someone to have a lower view, to think less of that person about whom we are talking. And this is a very, very serious problem with, in, in regards with communities because it is very damaging, and it is cancerous for biblical community. Slander is incompatible with the biblical love because love is kind, not irritable or resentful, says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Brothers and sisters, this is a serious list of sins here. And it's a very convicting list of sins here. No Christian should delight in any of these things, and especially no Christian should make a practice of any of these sins. This is a very serious problem in many churches today, unfortunately. We must all, for as long as we live, we must fight these sins that are unfortunately are so common in so many biblical communities today because they dishonor God and because they destroy the unity that the gospel brings, we must fight them every day. Then comes verse 2, and 
normally through, through the New Testament, um, whenever you have a list of vices, normally that will be followed by a list of virtues. It, it brings that balance in. But Peter does something else. Instead of responding to these vices with a list of virtues, he starts talking about milk. And, and I said at the beginning that he's a, he's a great writer, so there is something great in here. You see, I assisted the birth of all my three kids. The first one was at a very new-agey birthing center that made me very uncomfortable. Um, the birth of a second one was at home in our bedroom on the floor. The birth of, of the third one was in the hospital in more normal conditions. With the first one, we barely made it to the birthing center. With the second one, we didn't make it at all, not even downstairs. And with the third one, Emma had to be induced in order to give birth. You can see all, each one of them are very different experiences, but something is common in all three of them. Right after the baby is born, right after you, you hear that first cry, um, um, after you count, make sure that it has uh, ten, 10 fingers, uh, one of the most important things that, uh, that people look at into a baby is that this baby will seek for the mother's milk. That's a sign that the baby is healthy, that the baby will start seeking for the mother's milk. This is the same image that Peter uses here, that healthy, strong desire for milk that the baby has. That's what Peter talks about here, that longing that wakes parents up in the night, not only once and not only for a few weeks, that, that thirst that makes even a newborn baby look at you with that face that you know what he wants to say is that if you don't take me right now to mama, I'm going to make your life a nightmare. And, and fathers know what I'm talking about. That deep, persistent desire is the way that Christians should want this milk that Peter talks about. If indeed, Peter says, they've been transformed by God. If indeed, they have tasted God. If indeed, they have new life in God. So this milk, Peter says, must be pure. must not be watered down. It must be honest, somehow in contrast with the sins from above, and somehow in tune with the love that had to be sincere and the pure heart that we already talked about. And then Peter says that this milk is spiritual, as I have in my translation here. We see this word is not the normal word that is used through the New Testament to describe something spiritual. It's a different word, and um, scholars will say that it should better be uh, translated as referring to something that is rational or reasonable. And I really appreciate what the CSB does again here. I, I'm, I, I'm not, CSB is not my translation, but if you have a CSB at home, I will strongly encourage you, go read First Peter in this translation. They did a fantastic job capturing some of these depths of the text. But they, the CSB says, desire the pure milk of the word. Not the spiritual milk, the milk of the word. Because they understand that what Peter does here is a play on words. You see, before he talked about the word of God, which he, said, which he said that is the gospel. So he talked about the gospel and he referred to it by using the word logos. And now he uses the word logikos to talk about the milk. And, and you see that he creates this connection between the milk and the word. It is the pure milk of the gospel that we must desire for our spiritual nourishment. The fact that the believers are compared with newborn babies in this text, again, is different from the rest of the New Testament. Because normally, when, when the authors of the New Testament talk about believers as being babies, they, they point to the fact that they are immature. There is something not right about, about them. That's, that's normally how it goes. You, you are a baby if you, if you need to grow in, 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 in um, your spiritual maturity. 
But Peter really, when he talks, when he compares believers with, with babies, he refers to all believers. It, it doesn't matter what stage in your spiritual maturity you are. Because for Peter, you see, and I think that's, that's in accordance with the rest of the Bible, the gospel is not just a first step for somebody, for a believer. It, we, we didn't just need the gospel when we became believers and now we are fine. Now we need something, something more than that. You see, the gospel is not just a tool for evangelism. The gospel is not just for the immature, for those who still need to grow. The gospel, and we all still need to grow, but the gospel is vital for each one of us every day. Because the gospel provides everything that we need for spiritual growth. And this spiritual growth is not just something mystical. It's not just something that mysteriously happens as, as, we, as we sleep or as we watch TV or whatever, spiritual growth is a rational, is a, is, a, is a reasonable process. As we delight in the Word of God, as we allow the Word of God to transform the way we think and to renew our minds, that is spiritual growth. The gospel repeats to us the love that we are to imitate. The gospel deepens our relationship with God and makes us fall in love with God more and more every day. The gospel reminds us about the gravity of sin and about the immeasurable grace that we have received through Christ and how much we depend on this grace every day. The gospel tells us that we were in equal need of salvation. So now we have absolutely no reason and no grounds to look down at someone in the church. The gospel prompts us to put the other's interests above our own and to seek living in the unity that has been granted to us through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we need to be faced with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ every day of our lives. Amen. We need to feed on it. Uh, uh, Paul and, uh, Peter ended uh, chapter 1 by saying, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is how they received it, by being preached to them. See, we are transformed by the gospel when we read the gospel, because now we have it written as well. And we must make sure that we do read the gospel, we do read the word of God every day. We, we are transformed by the gospel when we hear it proclaimed, so we must make sure that we set ourselves in context in which we can hear the gospel being proclaimed to us. We are transformed by the gospel when we proclaim it to other people, so we must make sure that we proclaim the gospel, that the gospel is on our lips. And we are transformed by the gospel when we preach it to ourselves every day. As we process through every day, as we process to, through things in our day-by-day -day lives, we must preach the gospel to ourselves because it is vital to our lives. Thus, if truly and earnestly you thirst for the gospel, then we diligently will seek it every day and delight in it just like our life depends on it. This, Peter says, grows us up into salvation. He said that in verse, in verse 2. And when he says that, that this grows us up into salvation, he doesn't mean to say that we gradually become more and more saved. It doesn't mean to say that as we drink this milk, we make ourselves more and more saved. No, he follows this picture of a newborn. You, you need to see this in the context. He follows this picture that, and, and it's the same image of the infant being raised by the milk. Just as the infant is alive but grows by being nourished by, from the milk that the mother gives him, 
Similarly, the believers are alive, but they grow spiritually by being nourished with, through the gospel that God has given us every day. Amen. And until Christ returns, and that work will be perfected, until Christ returns, we need the gospel every day. We need the grace to sustain us every day. Finally, we arrive at verse 3, and we find the conditional here. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And you see, it's interesting here. Peter, he knows that he's talking to believers. He said that he made it clear already a few times through, through, the, through chapter 1. He has no doubt that these people have at some point tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But what he questions here, he doesn't question these people's salvation. He questions these people's conduct. He says something like this, if indeed you have tasted the gospel, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then do, do, is that being seen in your life? Do you actually live like that? So Grace Church, how does your life reflect what you say you believe? How many of these fundamentals of Christianity that you uphold, how many of these do you actually live out? How, how much delight do you find in the Word of God every day? How much do you rely on His grace every day? How much do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ every day? Because remember, we, we, we said uh, uh, some time ago, if we struggle in our love with each other, then we need to feed more on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because a lack of brotherly love and the presence of these sins in, in verse 1 are, are a clear sign of spiritual malnourishment. We need the gospel to grow. We need it every day. So if indeed we have tasted the goodness of God, we must want it more and more every day. Like there is nothing, but absolutely nothing in this life that we desire more than God. Brothers and sisters, do we desire God? Do we desire Him in the morning, at the noon, and the night? Do we desire Him like our life depends on His sustenance and on His spoken word, on the gospel for us? I pray that that will be true about us. However, if you are here this morning and, and you are not a child of God, and you haven't put your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore you haven't been born again through that, that means that you haven't truly tasted that the Lord is good. So I pray this morning, and I, I want to urge you this morning to taste and see that the Lord is good, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the message according to which Jesus came to die for my sin and for your sin, because the wages of our sin was that, and he decided to take that from us and instead to give us eternal life, to provide forgiveness for our sins. I pray that you will believe that this morning and that you will leave your burden, at sin, your burden of sin at the feet of Jesus because he loves you. He loves you more than anyone on this earth could ever love you. I pray that you will find freedom in this love of Jesus. And that you will delight and you will desire it every day. Church, the regenerate life is marked by a deep love for God's people and by a helpless thirst for the gospel. 
as people who are redeemed by Jesus. We are to love each other every day like Christ loved us. And we are to delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ like our lives depend on it every day. May it be true about us. We're going to close in prayer now. And I made another promise this morning. I made it a few days ago, four this morning. But I promise that I'm going to pray in Romanian. Um, so I, I know that many of you will not understand much. You are lucky if you know, if you know what I say, amen. But um, as I pray and as you don't understand what I'm saying, I, I hope that you can join me in this prayer. And, and if, you, if you really uh, cannot catch anything from what I say, just meditate on, on, on what Peter told us in this text how we are to love each other and how we are to seek the gospel. Pray that the Lord will increase your love and pray that the Lord will increase your taste for his goodness and for the gospel. So let's, let's pray now. Doamne, îți mulțumim pentru dimineața asta. Îți mulțumim pentru cuvântul care ne l-ai rostit din Scriptură. Îți mulțumim că ești bun și că prin bunătatea ta te-ai oferit pe tine însuți ca jertfă pentru noi. Îți mulțumim, Doamne, pentru iubirea care ne-a arătat-o la cruce. Îți mulțumim că prin crucea Ta suntem iubiți de Tine pentru o eternitate și putem să arătăm dragostea aceasta față de ceilalți în comunitatea noastră. Doamne, vreau să mă rog pentru fiecare în dimineața aceasta, mă rog ca iubirea lor față de ceilalți să crească din ce în ce mai mult în fiecare zi și iubirea lor față de tine să crească la, în același timp cum, ne, cum tu produci în nas maturitate din punct de vedere spiritual. Mă rog, Doamne, ca iubirea noastră să crească în fiecare zi. Doamne, îți mulțumim pentru cuvântul tău, îți mulțumim pentru Evanghelia care încă produce transformare în nas. Îți mulțumim că avem Evanghelia accesibilă în fiecare zi. Îți mulțumim că de fiecare dată când suntem însetați după cuvântul Tău, putem să mergem la Tine și să auzim cuvântul Tău. Îți mulțumim pentru harul acesta. Mă rog că fiecare dintre noi vom flămânzi după Evanghelie în fiecare zi. Amen. Amen.